Good evening to each one of you. It is good to be back again. We do look forward to our times down here, and we are really looking forward to this weekend again. I'm amazed people remember four years ago my basic series. Usually time blurs the memory. How old were you, Norman, when I first came to Portland, Tennessee? 23? Yeah, yeah. 22? Yeah. That's the first time we met before you ever got around here to Loma Linda. Well, this weekend, we, uh, in this evening and tomorrow afternoon, we're going to do some analyzing. And our subject to analyze is going to be the relationship of justification and sanctification to salvation. Justification and sanctification, how do they relate to our salvation, and what is the biblical understanding? Now, you might be asking the question, why do I always talk about righteousness by faith? Because that is my primary subject, and you've heard me talk about it from different angles. This is just another angle from the very first one that we did here four years ago. Two reasons. Number one, the gospel is the heart of salvation. Doctrines are important. Prophecy is important. Current events are interesting. But the gospel is the heart of everything. No matter how much head knowledge we have up here, no matter how, how much we know about what is happening in our world, if we don't have a saving, strong, secure relationship with Jesus Christ, nothing else really matters. So I make no apologies for talking often about righteousness by faith. And the second reason is that the challenges to the true gospel keep coming. They don't seem to lessen. They don't seem to go away. The challenges to the way salvation works just keeps coming harder and harder, and therefore sometimes we need to go back over it and back over it so we know what we believe and are not distracted by the various views that are out there, some of which are very persuasive. So what I'm going to do tonight is to analyze with you a column that appeared in the Adventist Review, written by the uh, current editor of our Sabbath School Quarterlies. I'm going to read the relevant parts of this article first, and then we're going to break it down and analyze it point by point. This is the way it's written. An independent ministry published a while back a special issue of its flagship magazine, Its definition of the everlasting gospel was that, quote, every man, woman, and child must die daily. We must surrender our will moment by moment to God, the heart united with his heart, the mind united with his mind. Only then can we think the thoughts and live the life of Jesus, end quote. Here we are in the 21st century, more than 113 years after 1888, and this is how some still define the everlasting gospel? Isn't the everlasting gospel the good news that Jesus, the God-man, lived a life of perfect obedience to the law and then died as my substitute in order that I, by faith, can claim his perfect righteousness as my own? a righteousness that comes only by faith in his righteousness, a righteousness credited to me apart from the works of the law? Through the power of God's Spirit, a believer can indeed die to self daily and indeed think the thoughts and live the life of Jesus. That's good news too. But the moment these internal actions become conditions for justification, the moment they become the means by which a person is saved, 
the good news gets blunted like with a sledgehammer. The magazine's theology is just like Roman Catholicism. Notice how humanistic, how sinner-centered this understanding of the gospel is. We must die daily. We must surrender our will. We must do this. We must do that. The argument that it's God doing the work works in us and thus not our own doesn't let them off the hook. If some folks do good works and some don't, it's only because some have made a choice to allow God to work in them and some haven't. It's still the people themselves doing these works. And if these works justify them, then they're saved by faith and works, period. God does work in us so that we can become righteous. That's an undeniable part of the Christian experience. But no matter how righteous we become by what God does in us, our salvation still comes only from what God has done outside us in the life and death of Jesus. Our hope of salvation must never remain centered upon ourselves or what happens within. Instead, the righteousness that saves us, the obedience that redeems us, and the holiness that justifies us always remains external to us, a righteousness that exists in heaven itself, the righteousness of God himself. There's no Christ on their cross, which means that whatever good they offer comes burdened with the unbearable weight of salvation by works, which is no gospel and certainly not the everlasting one. Well, that's the column. Truth, error, combination of both, what is it? And how can we tell? How can we sort it all out? Some things sound very good and some cause question marks to come in our minds. Do we have, do we have a clear enough understanding of how salvation works so that we can sort it out? The truth from the error and know why some parts are truth and some parts are not. Before I uh, actually go into an analysis of this column, I thought you might be interested in some letters that came into the Adventist Review after this column was printed. Quite a few came in. And here are some samples from some letters that came in. Did Clifford Goldstein say there were no conditions to salvation? There are certainly conditions that human beings must meet to gain salvation, and some of them can be difficult to meet, but meeting those conditions does not count for merit, does not qualify us for heaven, and does not constitute payment for, fitness for, or title to heaven. All these things are gifts to us. All are based initially, always, and solely on the righteousness of Christ. The conditions merely guarantee that heaven's population is limited to those who think it's a good idea to have Jesus in charge. Well, that was one letter. Another letter. This was a masterpiece on righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cruel cross of Calvary. Right? Another letter. It is a matter of record that in recent years, some who have been most eloquent in preaching the cross have left the denomination, carrying their entire church with them. I like what I once read. If legalism has killed its thousands, antinomianism, no law, has killed its ten thousands. There must have been a better way to express what Goldstein was trying to say. I am not sure that it is accurate by merely quoting from just a piece of an article to say that, quote, they believe in righteousness by works. And one last letter. 
According to Goldstein's view of the gospel, Christ should have addressed Nicodemus in something like the following manner in John 3. Nicodemus, you are a master of Israel, but what you need to understand, Mr. Pharisee legalist, is that you are justified by faith alone outside of and apart from what happens inside of you. There are no conditions to your being justified or retaining justification other than your believing. This is the essence of the gospel. Once you understand this objective gospel, we can talk about being born again and the heart change that comes. Now, this sounds like good news. Almost. Trouble is, the master teacher did not say it this way. Instead, he insisted, another must, that Nicodemus be born again with water cleansing and with the Spirit. Well, those were some of the letters that came in. Someone also sent me a letter that they wrote directly to him, not printed, but directly to him, that went like this. Regarding sanctified obedience having no part in man's salvation, as I follow your teaching to its logical conclusion, a few questions arise. If the Holy Spirit's work in us and its resultant obedience does not enter into salvation's picture because both are works, whether or not it is God working in us, then do we have to do anything by His grace to avoid receiving the beast's mark? Why is every man judged according to his works? If works, the inward working of the Spirit, which produces both inward and outward righteousness, have nothing to do with his salvation. Adventism is a restorative movement, one that not only restores God's law, but restores to mankind the genuine gospel of Jesus Christ, which gives him the power to keep from sinning. If there is a truly definitive Christless cross, it is found in the theology that denies the essential saving work of his indwelling spirit. It is a direct contradiction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is hailing him as Savior while denying his lordship with a kiss. And it is presumption. No father worthy of the name would attempt to raise his children without conditions of obedience. The creator of the heavens and earth not only has conditions of obedience... He fills us with his own power of love to obey him, to bear his image to the world, and to vindicate his name before the unlock, uh, onlooking universe. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is full of conditions that have a direct bearing on our salvation. It is so clear, I cannot think how good minds become confused over this issue. Well, you can see some of the concerns that various people had as they... Um, as they uh, looked at this material and read it in, uh, in the review column. So we need to kind of break it down a little bit. What are the real issues and what does the Bible say on these issues? I'm going to uh, begin by a little comment that someone made. From time to time we read articles that astonish us. It really takes your breath away. The chief editor of our denomination's worldwide adult Sabbath school Bible study guide thinks that what most of us understand to be the authentic gospel of Seventh-day Adventism is another gospel than the one he holds. The amazing thing, he is exactly right as to that point. It is, and decidedly is, a different gospel. And I'm going to suggest to you that we are not dealing here with semantics. We are not dealing here with just words. We are dealing here, believe it or not, with two different versions of how the gospel works two different ways of salvation, and we need to be able to see how it works. So I'm going to go back now and look at just one paragraph at a time, and then we'll discuss it and open our Bibles together. This is the way it started. This magazine's definition of the everlasting gospel was that, listen carefully, every man, woman, and child must die daily. We must surrender our will moment by moment to God, 
the heart united with his heart, the mind united with his mind, only then can we think the thoughts and live the life of Jesus, end quote. That was the magazine statement on how we are saved. And here's his response. Here we are in the 21st century, and this is how some still define the everlasting gospel. Isn't the everlasting gospel the good news that Jesus, the God-man, lived a life of perfect obedience to the law and then died as my substitute in order that I, by faith, can claim his perfect righteousness as my own, a righteousness that comes only by faith in his righteousness, a righteousness credited to me apart from the works of the law? So... First of all, in this uh, paragraph, there is an admission. There is an admission that the gospel is more than Christ's life and death on the cross. It says, I by faith claim that. That's something I must do, isn't it? Beyond just Christ dying on the cross, I by faith claim his perfect righteousness as his own. So faith is required. So is faith a condition of salvation? I'm going to read some statements from the Spirit of Prophecy, and then we'll read some from the Bible. Here is one. He, the sinner, is pardoned on condition. Ah, watch the word. On condition that he receives Christ, confessing and repenting of his sins and becoming renewed. Is that a condition then? Confessing and repenting. That one's in the Loma Linda Messages 103 and 104. In Selected Messages, Volume 1, 377, there are conditions to our receiving justification and sanctification and the righteousness of Christ. Testimonies, Volume 5, 543 and 535. God has made every provision to bring salvation within our reach, but he will not thrust it upon us against our will. He has laid down conditions in his word, and we should diligently, interestedly, with heart and mind, set about the task of learning these conditions, lest we make some mistake and fail to secure our title to the mansions above. We must, we should know what we must do to be saved. We must meet the conditions laid down in the word of God or die in our sins. We must know what moral changes are essential to be made in our characters through the grace of Christ in order to be fitted for the mansions above. So the very first thing that we're dealing with here is the question, and it's a major question, are there conditions to salvation? Apart from Jesus' death on the cross, apart from his life, apart from his resurrection, are there conditions to my being saved? Remember the statement was made again that um, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect obedience and then died as my substitute. That is the gospel, according to this. And so what is the true statement? Would you take your Bible right now and let's do a little Bible study. Mark 1, verse 15. This is John in prison. Jesus comes into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Verse 15, saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What do you have to do? Repent and believe the gospel. Two things that human beings must do to enter into the kingdom of God. Two things. Repent and believe. All right? Hebrews chapter 11. 
Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 4. This is the faith chapter. You know it well. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. What did Abel do? He offered. He brought a lamb, offered the sacrifice. That's an action he took. Look at verse 11. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Through faith, that's believing, trusting, accepting, through faith. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So by faith Moses chose not to stay with Pharaoh, but to go with God's people and all that that entailed. By faith Moses chose. First John chapter 3, verse 7. 1 John 3, verse 7. Now we're getting to some what some get very uncomfortable with. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. And all of a sudden, the, the fear of legalism comes into our mind. Doing something, obeying, but there it is. He that does righteousness not just believes, but does, is righteous, even as he is righteous. And one more text, Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. All right? So that eliminates what we can accomplish. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So this is talking about salvation. It's talking about justification. And it phrases, it uses the phrases, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does some renewing before justification. It is not just Jesus Christ died on the cross. It is not just Jesus lived, Jesus lived an obedient life. It is the Holy Spirit's renewing work and his regenerating work in the heart that produces justification. Sanctification is not the topic here. Justification is the topic. Statement from Ellen White, Steps to Christ, page 63. Our only ground of hope. Now, that's an important phrase to start with. Our only ground of hope. The only way we have any hope for salvation is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, credited to us, put to our account, set to our name, and, she says, and, in that wrought by his spirit working in and through us. So what is the only ground of hope? It's twofold. 
It is the imputation of Christ's righteousness credited to me because I have no righteousness. And it is in the Holy Spirit working in me to produce righteousness. Twofold ground of hope, not one. From a review in Herald, August 31, 1886. The word surrender comes in for high marks. There must be an entire, unreserved surrender to God, a forsaking and turning away from the love of the world and earthly things, or we cannot be his disciples. So before we even come into a discipleship and and relationship to Christ, there must be an entire, unreserved surrender to God. Surrender is a very important word. And here's another way the word comes in. Selected Messages, Volume 1, 366. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience. So surrender, Selected Messages, Volume 1, 366. Surrender before justification and to retain justification, continual obedience. Not intermittent obedience, not obedience desired, but continual obedience. And this one from Signs of the Times, November 15, 1899. Salvation means to us complete surrender of soul, body, and spirit. Salvation means complete surrender of soul, body, and spirit. What we've just read is very clear that surrender of the will precedes justification. No possibility of guessing at that, no possibility of misunderstanding it. Surrender precedes justification. Then is surrender a condition of salvation? It obviously has to be, because without surrender, we are not saved. We are not saved. Faith, by the way, is surrender. We're told that without faith, we cannot come to God. True faith is not believing that Jesus Christ exists. The devils believe that and tremble. True faith is yielding and committing. That's the Bible meaning of the word faith, as it refers consistently to the word throughout the New Testament. Faith is a a synonym for surrender. Surrender is a synonym for faith in the New Testament. They are the same thing. That's the only way we can receive Christ's righteousness. The only way. Um, A little further in the column, as uh, he put it out, He said, through the power of God's spirit, a believer can indeed die to self daily and indeed think the thoughts and uh, live the life of Jesus. That's good news, too. But the moment these internal actions become conditions for justification, the moment they become the means by which a person is saved, the good news gets blunted like with a sledgehammer. What he's saying is that if we believe there are internal conditions, heart conditions, by which we can only be saved, that precede justification, we destroy the good news. If we say that there are internal conditions like dying daily and thinking the thoughts and living the life of Jesus, what he's saying is those are results of salvation, not conditions to salvation. They come later, not before justification. And so the condition, there are no conditions to justification. There may be conditions to sanctification, he's saying, but not conditions to justification. Again, a couple of Ellen White statements. Again, the same reference that I start la- had last time. Implicit obedience is the condition of salvation. God's law must be obeyed in every particular. She doesn't pull too many punches on that. Implicit obedience is the condition of salvation. 
and must be there if we're going to be saved. Here's another one. This is um, Signs of the Times, December 15, 1887. The great gift of salvation is freely offered to us through Jesus Christ on condition that we obey the law of God. In other words, the offer is there. The offer of salvation is there, but we don't have it until we fulfill a condition. And she calls it obeying the law of God, which many think is rank legalism and don't want to have anything to do with that. One more. Self-denial is the condition of salvation. Self-denial. Bible Echo, December 9, 1895. So let's see what we found. Conditions of salvation. We've read one or two from the Bible that say repentance is a condition of salvation. We have read that faith is a condition of salvation. We have read that surrender is a condition of salvation. We have even read that obedience is a condition of salvation. And then we finally read that self-denial is a condition of salvation. All of those from Bible and Spirit of Prophecy sources are conditions of salvation. Now, here's where the problem comes. This is where the confusion lies. He said, the moment these internal actions become conditions for justification, these internal actions, the moment they become the means by which a person is saved, the good news gets blunted like with a sledgehammer. The problem we're facing here is confusing condition with means because he used the words right there, conditions or means by which a person is saved. Condition and means, are they the same thing? What is the only means of salvation? Would it do any good to have faith, to repent, to surrender if Jesus hadn't died on the cross? We could be here repenting until we die and we will go right to our graves with no hope of salvation. So none of these things are the means of our salvation, the cause of our salvation. The only thing that causes our salvation, the only thing that is a means of salvation, is the life and death of Jesus on the cross, just as he said, that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience and then died as my substitute. That is the means of salvation. Conditions. What then is a condition of salvation? When you take a trip with a car... Um, you get into the car, you turn on the engine, and nothing happens. You forgot to put gas in the gas tank. Or the engine is misfiring, the spark plugs aren't working right, and nothing happens. What is the means for car transportation? Is it you're getting into the car? Is that what's going to cause you to go down the road? Or is it the gas put into the engine, and fired by the cylinders. Isn't that the means of car transportation, the cause of car transportation? Now, let's say that's all working just fine. The, gas, the, the tank is full of gas and the car and the engine is tuned up properly. And you stand outside and say, okay, take me. I'm ready to go. And you stand outside the car. How far will you get? You have to get into the car, don't you? And you have to work some levers and some pedals on the floor if you're going to get one inch down the road. Now, is that a cause of your car travel or a condition of your car travel? I think you get the point. A condition is different than cause. Condition and means are two totally different things. One causes 
that car to run. The other, you participate in that car running by doing what is necessary to have a trip in that car. All right? So condition and means are always separate. When we exercise faith and when we obey, doing these things right here, neither causes salvation. Neither are a means of salvation. Jesus' death and the work of the Holy Spirit is the cause of salvation. So we must separate, and you can use either word, means or cause, as totally different from condition. But the problem is they're put together as synonyms in this article. When these internal actions become conditions for justification, the moment they become the means by which a person is saved, the good news gets blunted like with a sledgehammer. Half of that sentence is right, and half of that sentence is untrue. That's the problem in sorting out these kinds of things. One thing is put right next to the other to get us to believe that they're both the same thing. And unfortunately, they are not the same thing. Okay, a little farther. Um, he says, notice how humanistic, how sinner-centered this understanding of the gospel is. We must die daily. We must surrender our will. We must do this. We must do that. The argument that it's God doing the works in us and thus not our own doesn't let them off the hook. Um, before I comment on this, I want to read you something. This came from way back in the 1970s, late 1970s, when Robert Brinsmead was producing his magazine called The Present Truth. And here is what he said. Listen carefully. Here are the things you must do to get saved. One, you must seek the Lord. Two, you must repent. Three, you must believe. Four, you must choose. Five, you must surrender. Ah, surrender. So that's the missing ingredient in this cake called salvation. That's the missing number of the combination lock that will break open the Christian secret of a happy life. Is it? Maybe another guru of victorious living fame comes along and says, you've got all the right points, but you must rearrange the firing order as follows. One, four, five, two, three. Enough. This sort of gospel deserves to be mocked. That was Brinsmead's analysis of the gospel, that you must seek the Lord, you must repent, you must believe, you must choose, you must surrender. He mocked it. He said that gospel deserves to be mocked. It has no place in the gospel. Now, it's certainly true that we're invited to come to Jesus just as we are. Absolutely right. There are no conditions to coming to Christ. You come as you are. He doesn't ask you to come with certain things in place. But to justify a filthy and unregenerate sinner and leave him that way and say you're righteous when you're not, what do you think? Can you be justified before regeneration? That's the que question. Brinsmead said, yes, you are justified without surrender, obedience, self-denial, faith, and repentance. And he said that's a gospel deserving to be mocked. I've sensed the same approach right here. Let me read it to you again. We must die daily. We must surrender our will. We must do this. We must do that. That sounds a little bit of the same tone to me. I don't know about you. It's the we must 
being laughed at just a little bit. And then he continued, If some folks do good works and some don't, it's only because some have made a choice to allow God to work in them and some haven't. It's still the people themselves doing these works. And if these works justify them, then they're saved by faith and works, period. Faith and works, period. That's the only possible solution we have to that if we believe that the works justify. So the second point that has to be analyzed a little bit is good works. What is the proper place of good works? What he is saying here is that they have no place because if we're justified by good works, then we're working our way to heaven, and that's not salvation at all. Works do not justify is what he's saying. All right. I'm going to suggest to you that this concept that good works are the works of us let me read it again so we're very clear on this. He says, it's still the people themselves doing these works. And if these works justify them, then they're saved by faith and works. I'm going to suggest that that concept is thoroughly in conflict with Scripture. All right? We're going to start with Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The question is, who produces good works? Who produces good works? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What life am I living? My life? See, there's another word which must come into contrast here to understand exactly what we're dealing with. And that is human works. Is there a difference, a scriptural difference between human works and good works? Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Are good works produced by the human being once we're converted, or are they produced by God himself? The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29. Colossians 1, 27 to 29. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among, you Gentile, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Wherefore, I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, is that human originated works? It's divine works, Christ's works, which worketh in me mightily. One more text, Mark thirteen eleven, an interesting one doesn't really talk about works. Mark 13, 11. 
But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. When you're in a pinch and you've put these, these Bible texts in your mind and the Lord calls you into a place to speak for him, he says, don't worry, I will let my Holy Spirit work through your mind. And it is not you that will do the speaking, it is the Holy Spirit. That, again, doesn't sound like human speech. That sounds like God speaking. I think there's a difference between good works, as defined in the Scriptures, and human works, which are not. See, here's the problem. While we can choose to serve God, and we all can, we can make the choice, we can believe, how much can we carry out of what we choose on our own? Take a look again at Romans 7, if you have any doubts. The good that I would. I do not, and that which I would not, that I do. I've chosen to do right. With my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. I've got good intentions. I make my choices. I want to serve God, and then I find I have no abilities to carry it out. Human works don't do it. The only hope that there is is God working through me. True good works are possible only by God's grace, my friends only by God's grace. We can be the best of Saturday keepers and never keep one Sabbath in our lives. Saturday can be kept by human works, by refraining from activities and by doing all the right things and being in the right places. But not one Sabbath can be kept by human ability because Sabbath keeping is holy Sabbath keeping. The holy person keeps a holy Sabbath day. Changed by the power of God. That's good works. Sabbath keeping is good works. Saturday keeping is human works. There is a very important difference. We must never, ever think that we ourselves can provide or produce these works in us. And to say, to say, as he said here, that it's still the people themselves doing these works is just unscriptural. Yes, we choose. We choose to do, do those works but then we ask for the power of God to enable us to do the works because we have no power of ourselves. Well, he has one more paragraph here that I want to look at. He says, God does work in us so that we can become righteous. That's an undeniable part of the Christian experience. But no matter how righteous we become by what God does in us, our salvation still comes only from what God has done outside us in the life and death of Jesus. Our hope of salvation must never remain centered upon ourselves or what happens within. Instead, the righteousness that saves us, the obedience that redeems us, and the holiness that justifies us always remains external to us, a righteousness that exists in heaven itself, the righteousness of God himself. So a third issue that has to be looked at here is uh, the issue of how justification really works. Legal justification or experiential justification. Or both. Legal, experiential. What is the issue at stake here? You see, our hope of salvation has never been centered on ourselves. That's where it becomes confusing once again because he says our hope of salvation must never remain centered upon ourselves. We're in total agreement there. 
All we hold is that the inspired statements that we've been looking at say that says that God does work in us in this process, in the process of our being saved, that it is also an inward experience, not just a legal statement. It is also an experience that we participate in, and that is part of us. As we read earlier, our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That's legal justification. And in that wrought by his Holy Spirit working in and through us. So all we're asking is that we honor these statements for what they tell us. And please notice again the two sentences that were put together. Our hope of salvation must never remain centered upon ourselves, correct, or what happens within, error. You see? In one sentence, truth and error are put together. What happens within, according to Scripture, is very, very important. This is the way it came through in a um, Sabbath school lesson. It was dealing with Abraham. And the text used was, Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted to him for righteousness. And here was the comment in the lesson. However much Abram's life was a life of faith and obedience, it was not a life of perfect faith and perfect obedience. At times, he displayed weakness in both areas. The righteousness that saves us is a righteousness that is credited to us. This means that we are declared righteous in the sight of God despite our faults. It means that the God of heaven views us as righteous even if we are not. And there is the key to the whole thing. God views us as righteous even when we are not. So another word we can use here is this legal is declared. We are declared righteous. And this one here is making righteous. And what this has just said is that Abraham was declared righteous even when he was not. That's the way it came through in that particular um, um, Sabbath school lesson. Here's another interesting little footnote of history. Uh, they've had a controversy within the Coptic church in Egypt. Uh, Zechariah, uh, from the Coptic Orthodox Church, pastor of that church, experienced an evangelical conversion, and now his church is divided. Zechariah has been teaching that justification is a mere verdict of righteousness without any inward renewal. When God justifies sinners, he declares them righteous without making them righteous. And he cited Luther as, a, as his authority. And that caused great controversy in his Coptic church. No, not Seventh-day Adventist at all. So here we have yes to the first and no to the second for salvation. And that separates what the Reformers refused to separate, the status and the life. Are we saved without the life? Are we saved without experience? The Reformers never said that. That is a misuse of the Reformers to say that they were saved only by a legal declaration. The only way to keep it in harmony biblically is to keep new status and new life together. When the new life is right, the status is right. When the status is right, the life is right. It is one unit. It cannot be separated in saying one is salvational and the other is non-salvational. The experience doesn't matter. Justification, my friends, is not legal fiction. Because legal fiction says, I declare you righteous even though you're still filthy. That's legal fiction. And that's not what justification is all about. New status, new life, new creation, all the same thing. Just for interest's sake, I thought it'd be interesting to look at someone who um, lives, works, and has uh, been a professor down here for a long time. His name is Richard Rice. 
And here is what he wrote for Ministry Magazine a while back. He said, Sanctification, as the New Testament describes it, is an essential aspect of salvation. It is not secondary or subordinate to salvation. According to the New Testament, a person is not saved and then sanctified. A person is sanctified as a part of salvation. This, this whole issue is the evangelical dilemma. Justification saves, sanctification comes along later. And he's saying, no. Salvation itself is a totality, not a succession of different experiences. The expressions justification and sanctification describe not two separate experiences, but aspects of the inclusive experience of salvation. We need to get that clear. We only separate justification and sanctification so we can analyze them a little bit. But they are one experience. When we are justified, we experience sanctification. And it happens at the same moment and is necessary for salvation. He continued, Some discussions of salvation create the impression that justification is God's work and sanctification is man's work. This and this right here. But the New Testament represents God as responsible for both. That is the New Testament. God does both. At this point, someone may object that human effort is essential to sanctification while it has no part to play in justification. The Christian's good works are really the fruit of the Spirit. Good works. A Christian cannot point to anything in the experience of salvation, in justification or sanctification, as his contribution or achievement. Human works. Salvation is the work of God in all its aspects from first to last. If we could just get that one point, we would get most of the, of the confusion settled. Because the main issue of the evangelical gospel as proclaimed throughout the world is that justification is God's work and sanctification is half God's work and half my work. And the Bible says no. Sanctification is as much God's work as is justification. He continues, Our effort in sanctification is analogous to that of our faith in justification. Faith is a condition of justification, but not a contribution. That's very good. Condition, but not contribution. Human effort may be a condition of sanctification, but this does not render sanctification in part a human achievement. We are not somehow more responsible for our sanctification than we are for our justification. It is God who justifies, but it is also God who sanctifies. I thought that was a very astute and careful analysis of this issue. And then I came across another one from another name that is very common in the Seventh-day Adventist church. His name is Morris Venden. Listen. Please don't miss it. He's talking about the wedding garment. The wedding garment represents sanctification. Christ living his life in me through the Holy Spirit. It represents obedience and victory and overcoming, and it has not one thread of human devising in sanctification. That's what's putting on, what putting on the wedding garment is all about, and that's what Seventh-day Adventism is all about. The truth is that overcoming is God's work. God's work. Obedience is just as much a gift as is pardon. Victory is just as much a gift as is forgiveness. Sanctification is just as much a gift as is justification. It is not something we achieve. It is something we receive. Well said again. Well said. That if there is anything in any of these things that uh, are from us, it isn't righteousness by faith. 
If there is anything about righteousness by faith, it all comes from God. It is all part of God's work for us and not of our own activities and not of our own efforts. Well, I thought you might enjoy just a few of those sidelights. Not proof, but just interesting uh, things of uh, uh, corroboration. Now, near the end of his piece in this column, the author makes a telling admission. He says, and listen carefully, When some Adventists are trying to meld evolution with our faith, these people, these people meaning the ones he is opposing, the ones who have the uh, righteousness by works, the ones who are focusing on conditions, the ones he says, no good, these people, so let me read that again now. When some Adventists are trying to meld evolution with our faith, these people aren't. When some Adventists are questioning our prophetic message, these people aren't. When some Adventists are buying into the subjective and secularist premise notions of historical criticism, these people aren't. When some Adventists are doubting the prophetic ministry of Ellen White, these people aren't. And then comes this chilling statement all of which is commendable except for one technicality, there's no Christ on their cross, which means that whatever good they offer comes burdened with the unbearable weight of salvation by works, which is no gospel and certainly not the everlasting one. Very strong statement, wouldn't you agree? The ones who are trying to uphold the standards and the beliefs of Adventism are so tied into a legalistic gospel, he is saying, that there is no Christ on their cross. There is no gospel. This is not the gospel. And he is opposing it with all his ability. He says these, uh, he's saying these folks have no trouble with evolution, with our historic prophetic understandings, with historical criticism, or with the ministry of Ellen White. But because he thinks that these people also believe in a works gospel, he rejects all their consistency on these other points with the, with a suggestion that they are presenting the, sal the work of salvation in a misstated manner. I will agree as to one point, the importance of the gospel of righteousness by faith the way of salvation. It is vital that we understand and explain this issue as our first priority, no matter how much we want to talk about creation, no matter how much we want to talk about Ellen White. Those things are secondary. I agree with that. The gospel is primary. But I will also insist that evangelism and Bible studies and baptisms, if connected with a false gospel, do more harm than if these, though the people never came into the church at all because we will be baptizing tares into the church. And that, in effect, is what has happened recently with a gospel that doesn't have any conditions to it and that has no, that is, is focused only on justification legally done. The most dangerous thing we can do, I think, is to take that approach. Um, just one more little thing that he said in another column that he wrote later. He said, I am saved by a righteousness that exists outside of me, a righteousness that is credited to me independent of my own personal righteousness. So I'm saved by this, not this. I can't imagine how anyone who knows the Lord, who has even seen a glimpse of God's righteousness as revealed in Jesus, could believe that whatever the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives is good enough to give them saving merit before God. How could anyone drawing near to Jesus believe that whatever is happening in them justifies them in any way? I'm amazed that people actually believe it. All I can think, now listen to the next sentence, all I can think is that these folks 
have never experienced justification by faith themselves. What he has just said is, I don't know what justification by faith is. I've never experienced it. Because, my friends, I totally disagree. And I mean totally disagree with his understanding of salvation. And he's saying that if that is true, I have never experienced justification by faith. That is a very, very strong, a pejorative statement, and I don't think helps the situation here at all. Here's another statement from a different person. This is a former editor of Ministry Magazine. He said, salvation is made up of two parts, grace and transformation. Grace is what saves us. It is outside us and is given to us freely when we place our trust in Jesus. Transformation begins to take place the moment we receive grace. Transformation takes place inside us. We always look to grace for the assurance of our salvation. What is he saying? Transformation doesn't save and grace is separate from transformation. Grace saves Transformation is something else, and it doesn't save us at all. Where, where, where did all this come from? You know, my friends, fruits always come from seeds planted. Fruits don't appear on a tree by magic. There's always a seed that's planted. And these seeds may appear innocuous and harmless. Way back in 1979, when Desmond Ford presented the same thing I've been reading to you, from this column, my friends. That was Desmond Ford's presentation at Pacific Union College. That's why whenever I read something like this, my mind begins to spin right back 25 years because all that I read to you in this column is what Desmond Ford shared with us as the gospel of salvation. In 1979, because of his statements, a furor of discussion was raised throughout the Seventh-day Adventist church and uh, on the issues of justification, sanctification, and the new birth. Those were the issues being discussed. And 145 leaders of the church were called to Washington to study these issues. And they produced a statement printed in the Adventist Review called The Dynamics of Salvation. And it is a good statement, by and large. But I want to share with you what I believe were some seeds planted in this statement. Section 4 says, the new status in Christ. And several things are listed. Justification, reconciliation, forgiveness, adoption, and sanctification, meaning consecration, used in the sense of consecration. So, and they said these terms, justification, reconciliation, forgiveness, adoption, and sanctification, along with the concepts they entail, all point to our new status as Christians. All right. As I read through those five points, there wasn't one word about transformation. That didn't appear in those five points. Justification, reconciliation, forgiveness, adoption, and consecration. Transformation omitted. Continued on a little bit in this article. Even if we slip and fall, as long as we stand in the faith relationship with God, we retain our new status as his sons and daughters which left me with two unanswered questions. What about cherishing that slip and fall? What about holding on to it, defending it, say, I wouldn't have lost my temper if you hadn't, and on and on. What about holding on to that slip? What about repentance? I didn't see anything about even if we slip and fall and repent. That didn't appear. Even if we slip and fall, as long as we stand in the faith relationship with God, we retain our new status as his sons and daughters. 
So it just didn't talk about cherishing or it didn't talk about repentance. And then they quoted the very famous Steps to Christ statement that I've gone over with you folks here before. It is not the occasional good deed or misdeed, that the, but the general trend of the life that indicates the direction in which we are moving. And I would just say one thing. Direction is not the same as standing. Yes, it does show what direction we're moving. But does it tell us if we stand righteous or unrighteous? doesn't say anything about that. It's just direction. Misuse, I think, of that statement. All right, that's section four. Five points for a new status in Christ. Then section five, the new life in Christ. So now the status, new life. Under the new life, number one is new birth. Under new life comes new birth. And then number two, restoration. And then sanctification. All right? So new birth restoration and sanctification all put in the new life in Christ. Well, as I looked at that, I said, new birth shouldn't be there. That should be in the new status section. New status meaning reconciliation, justification, and forgiveness. As best I can tell, that's the new birth. Unless a man is born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. But no, here it's after the status. Now it's new life. It's now in the sanctification segment segment and separating the new birth and the new life from justification and the new status planted a seed my friends it planted a seed that led to what we just read right here that it is only legal justification and not experiential justification that matters and then when sanctification was discussed the words works and fruit were used for sanctification works and fruit and nothing was said about sanctification being a gift of God's grace, which also planted a seed. Well, it's my works. It's something I have to do. Nothing about this being a special gift of God's grace. Came across this statement from Ellen White. The Father will impart to you the sanctification and holiness which will fit you for his work in a world of sin and qualify you for an immortal inheritance in his kingdom. What happens here? The Father imparts sanctification. I don't produce sanctification. It is a gift. That's what imparting is, a gift. And that fits us and qualifies us for heaven. Not just justification, but sanctification. At Signs of the Times, June 18, 1896. And then one more. If the character which we develop during our probation is according to the divine pattern, it qualifies us to receive the welcome well done. Character qualifies which is denied here. This is supposed to be outside of what qualifies us for heaven. That is Manuscript Releases, Volume 1, page 201. In other words, we're not qualified for heaven by justification alone. That is only... Um, uh, we're qualified by both justification and sanctification. Then it talks about obedience in this article. And there is nothing about the word condition when obedience is mentioned here. Obedience is simply described as to how it will happen. So my thoughts as I read through this article, the dynamics of salvation with hindsight, of course, looking at it after 20 years of time, is that the seeds that were planted here were largely seeds of omission and misplacement. Not heresy, not falsehood, but putting something in the wrong place. New birth, putting it over with sanctification. Nothing about conditions. Largely omission and misplacement. And these seeds 
have made the evangelical gospel mainstream in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, I want to again share with you what the um, editor of Ministry Magazine uh, said on these issues. Conf- his, the title of his article was, Confused Over the Basis of Salvation. Why are our young people so confused over the gospel? Sabbath school lessons unwittingly added to the confusion. These lessons taught that the new birth is part of justification. The new birth, right here, part of justification. And he said, that confused. Remember, I'm reading from someone who believes just as the editor of the Sabbath School Lessons believes on this point. How converted do I have to be in order to be saved? Interesting question. This is not to deny the importance of the new birth. Without it, no one will see the kingdom of heaven. But individuals cannot and dare not look to the new birth as part of the ground of their assurance in Christ. So you can't go back and say, well, I was born again, therefore I have Christ as my Savior. He says, no. If they are justified by faith, the new birth will inevitably follow. So first I'm justified, legally justified, and then the new birth comes later. It follows. After we're saved, the new birth does not save according to this. The new birth is a result of salvation, which means if you're not born again, you're still saved because you have experienced legal justification. You have been declared righteous because you believe. At the same time, God transforms them through the new birth experience. The growth in Christ that begins here is the work of a lifetime never fully realized in this life. And there's the second part of it. Yes, we are born again, he says. We're first saved. This saves us. And then we're born again. And then we grow gradually, never really fully completing it in this life. Never. Justification does not make a person intrinsically righteous. Sinners enjoy the assurance of salvation not because their standing rests in what has been done to them, but because it rests in what Christ has done for them. Ah, that was Des Ford, exact words. Not what happens in us, but what he has done for us. The new birth is not a qualification for heaven. Same author. Nowhere does the Bible say that a person gets to heaven on the basis of the new birth experience. Does that amaze you? Two things happen simultaneously. God declares those persons righteous on the basis of Christ's perfect life and death, and at the same moment, he brings about the new birth experience. So he says it happens, but this is what saves, and this is a result of it. While the work of Christ for them is perfect and complete, the work of Christ in them is never fully completed in this life. And that's where the problem lies, because he does say that both things happen. Both things happen. Yes, you are declared righteous and you are born again. But by separating them and by saying that one saves and one is a result of salvation, he can then say the inner work, the experiential work, is never fully completed in this life. So it will always be imperfect. You'll always be sinning somewhat. You'll never have a complete transformed experience. And then he says to lose that salvation, to lose the salvation that they have by being declared righteous, they have to make a conscious choice to withdraw their decision to depend alone on Christ. So how do you lose your salvation? You turn your back on Christ. And you say, I don't want you in my life anymore. You can't lose your salvation by breaking the Sabbath. 
You can't lose your salvation by withholding tithe because, after all, that's part of experiential. And experiential is never complete and it doesn't save and it doesn't qualify you for heaven and it is not a condition of salvation. So you cannot be lost by going out and getting drunk. You cannot be lost by David committing adultery. The only way you can be lost is turning your back on Christ and rejecting him. That's the only way to be lost. That's where the implications come, you see. This sounds good. Yes, we are born again. I mean, yes, we are declared righteous. And yes, we're born again. And God does both things. But by separating them, you bring all these conclusions into play. That it isn't so important. He says, no one will enter heaven without being both justified and sanctified. Good statement. Justification, the work of Christ for me, is always the basis of my salvation, while sanctification, the work of Christ in me, is the result of my salvation. So whenever you hear it phrased like that, Christ work for me, Christ work in me, one is the basis, one is the result, you know you're dealing with the evangelical gospel. That is the heart and soul of what is being taught throughout Christianity today. Um, <clears throat> Here was a conference president that responded to these articles in Ministry Magazine, a conference president in our own Pacific Union Conference at that time. Christ living within us by his spirit is not that which saves us. The concept of a higher power and me working together to procure and secure my salvation is pagan and has no place in Seventh-day Adventism. I'm going to read that again if you missed it. The concept of a higher power and me working together to procure and secure my salvation is pagan and has no place in Seventh-day Adventism. That's how strong the statements have become and how bold they have become in recent years on this issue. The date on this happens to be 1991. 1991. That's why I'm saying he's no longer in that capacity in uh, this conference. I'm going to finish up by... Uh, going outside of Adventism, because all of this that I'm saying here, no conditions for salvation, good works are really human works, legal justification saves, experiential justification does not save, it just comes along for the ride. This is not coming from inside Adventism. This is coming from outside Adventism. Philip Yancey is probably the primary name throughout uh, modern Christianity perhaps the most popular writer on the subject of salvation in the last ten years or so. And among non-Adventist authors, he has read in Adventism an awful lot. We sell a fair number of his books in our book centers. In 2001, for instance, the Avondale College Church, with the approval of the Southern Pacific Division, invited him to speak on grace, and they broadcasted over satellite to 180 locations throughout Australia. So this has been a major, major push in some places. His book, What's So Amazing About Grace, has been that watershed book. What's So Amazing About Grace? Perhaps one of the foremost books on this subject. And you know, the word grace and the word relationship are kind of in the same mold, mold these days. Someone suggested that perhaps the book might better have been titled Only Half of Grace. Because Philip Yancey, in 300 pages, never mentions these texts. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Grace abound to every good work. Second Corinthians 9, 8. These are texts that do not appear in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. Another one. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Second Timothy 2, 1. 
For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus 2, 11 and 12. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Hebrews 12, 28. Never appeared in his book on grace. Uh, he makes no mention of Jesus' parable of the man who sold all that he had to purchase the field and buy that treasure. Or the merchant who did the same to buy the pearl of great price. No mention of that, of them giving up everything, surrendering everything to buy that pearl. The parable of the talents in which the diligent use of God's gifts, that doesn't appear uh, at all in the book as well. In the prodigal son story, Yancey implies that repentance or the lack thereof made no difference to the father in Jesus' story. Didn't matter if the son repented or not. Doesn't it remain true that the son had to leave the pig pen and start walking toward home to be reaccepted in the father's family? We don't read of the father traveling to the city where his son was partying, apologizing for the legalistic rules which drove the son away, and then offering the son an unconditional invitation to return irrespective of how he lived. We don't read that, do we? And yet he says repentance or the lack thereof made no difference to the father. Jesus didn't teach that gospel. Likewise, in referring to the parable of the servant forgiven for the 10,000 talents, he fails to mention the Bible's clear teaching that the servant's forgiveness depended on his willingness to forgive someone else. Condition, condition just isn't there. Here is Yancey again. Jesus' kingdom calls us to another way, one that depends not on our performance but his own. We do not have to achieve but merely follow. He has already earned for us the costly victory of God's acceptance. Now, what has Jesus earned for us by his performance? He has earned for us the possibility of salvation, hasn't he? He has earned for us grace unmerited. Has he earned for us acceptance? Or does that come on the basis of certain conditions met? Isn't that the only way that acceptance will be there? And this idea that he has already earned for us the costly victory of God's acceptance is rampant in Adventism today. That our, that our acceptance has nothing to do with our behavior. They are totally separate ideas. At one point, Yancey quotes favorably one who writes of God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. Notice the words, unconditional grace and forgiveness, putting two, a truth and a falsehood together. God's grace is unconditional. He offers it to everyone. His love is unconditional, but his forgiveness is depending on a condition. Two words, one truth and one error. He quotes, um, an, uh, at one point again, he quotes a person who insists that grace comes with no strings attached, demanding nothing from us, but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. He believes in an umbrella view, you see, of God's forgiveness, a canopy supposedly covering past, present, and future sins all at once, because this legal justification covers it all. So that means that we, our sins in the future are covered by the umbrella of justification. Yancey again makes no distinction between what we do in our own strength, human works, and what the sanctified Christian does through God's strength. Nothing about that. He um, says about Jesus, Jesus proclaimed unmistakably that God's law is so perfect and absolute that no one can achieve righteousness. All right? All right. 
Yet God's grace is so grace that we do not have to. Have to what? Achieve righteousness. So you see the first point. God says no one can achieve righteousness. Correct. The second point should read, God's grace is so grace that he provides and, and works righteousness in us. But instead he says God's grace is so great that we don't have to achieve that righteousness. He says it is our human destiny on earth to remain imperfect and incomplete. Isn't that a lovely goal for Christianity? That's what Christ offers us, to remain imperfect and incomplete. At one point he writes that Jesus replaced the categories of righteous and guilty with sinners who admit and sinners who deny. So you're one of those two, I guess. Sinners who admit and sinners who deny. Well, that's a little bit of the um, other gospel, the evangelical gospel. Someone commented as a conclusion on this, analyzing it. It offers the reader a half gospel. Freedom from guilt without freedom from sin. Only half of grace. Jesus presented the full gospel of Scripture in one very brief sentence stated to the adulterous woman thrown at his feet, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Yancey's book focuses on the first half of this sentence. The other half it denies. It is truly alarming that so many Seventh-day Adventists have allowed themselves to be taken captive by this book and its author. For those who were once people of the book to let the Bible's unerring standard be held hostage to flowery words and emotional stories is a crisis of no small magnitude. Yancey's book is a revealing commentary on the continuing fall of Protestant Babylon. Unless, in Ellen White's words, we preach Christ in the law, neither will be correctly understood. The same Jesus who declared, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one another, also stated, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Love is the fulfilling of the law, because only if the law is fulfilled can we be sure true love is present. The new covenant of grace, identical throughout Scripture and never mentioned in Yancey's book, defines the inner core of the Christian's relationship to God. I will put my law in their inward parts. And write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the gospel. That's what God provides, and that's what he wants us to have. Two thoughts from the Spirit of Prophecy to finish up. Acts of the Apostles, 530 to 533. The holiness that God's word declares he must have before he can, before he can be saved. Stop right there. The holiness that God's word declares that he must have before he can be saved. Good works, experiential justification is the result of the working of divine grace as he bows in submission to the discipline and restraining influences of the spirit of truth. Not human works, but divine grace producing that in him. Man's obedience can be made perfect only by the incense of Christ's righteousness. There's the power of grace. And then she says, precious assurance, glorious is the hope before the believer as he advances by faith toward the height of Christian perfection. And then from Testimonies, Volume 8, 313 to 316, it is by unceasing endeavor that we maintain the victory over the temptations of Satan. There are hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil that must be overcome. We must learn to look upward. Then she says, and this is the part which we must take seriously, a storm is coming, relentless in its fury. Are we prepared to meet it? 
We need now the sword of the Lord to cut to the very soul and marrow of fleshly lusts, appetites, and passions. Like as he who has called you is holy, be yourselves also holy in all manner of living, because it is written, Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Only as we see our utter helplessness and renounce all self-trust, all of this business has to go, no human works, shall we lay hold on divine power. All our good works are dependent on a power outside of ourselves. Therefore, there needs to be a continual reaching out of the heart after God. Perils surround us, and we are safe only as we feel our weakness and cling with the grasp of faith to our mighty Deliverer. And then we must not forget, as the mind dwells upon Christ, the character is molded after the divine similitude. We contemplate his character, and thus he is in all our thoughts. His love encloses us. His image is imprinted upon the eye of the soul and affects every portion of our daily life, softening and subduing our whole nature. We have become transformed in character, for heart, soul, and mind are irradiated by the reflection of him who loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus is to us an abiding presence, controlling our thoughts and ideas and actions. Jesus Christ is everything to us, the first, the last, the best in everything. Jesus Christ, his spirit, his character, colors everything. It is the warp and woof, the very texture of our entire being. May I suggest we've just heard righteousness by faith in its purity. Messages to young people, 159 to 161. Well... I don't like to do things like this. I don't like to have to point out where error has been creeping into the best of our materials, the best of our speakers, the best of our presentations, but it is. And unless we know how to differentiate between issues, means, cause, conditions, good works, human works, declaring righteous, making righteous, we will be sucked in. We will be sucked in because there are very persuasive speakers that just put two phrases right together. And you won't be able to tell the difference. You won't be able to sort it out. You'll say, that sounds good. That sounds right. At least I understood part of it. It sounded good. And then you'll assume the other is good. We are in the most subtle times of uh, deceptive statements that I have ever seen. And we need, by God's grace, to have the ISAF promised in the book of Revelation. So that discernment is clear. Not judgmental, not antagonistic, not denouncing. I am not going to say one thing about this individual's relationship to Jesus Christ. That is between him and his Lord. I have enough trouble with myself. But the issue is very simple. What is being stated is going to lead many, many honest, sincere Christians into a false assurance of salvation. Satan's ultimate counterfeit to God's grace and the gospel. So I encourage you to study. I encourage you to think. I encourage you to wrestle with these subjects. We'll do a little more of this tomorrow afternoon. Tomorrow morning will be different. Tomorrow afternoon we'll talk about again specifically what is justification and secondly what is sanctification and what are some of the current errors that are popping into both of those issues. So what we're dealing with this, this evening and tomorrow is heavy duty stuff. There are no uh, interesting stories and anecdotes and things like that. This is heavy-duty theological study, but it is not ivory tower theology, my friends. This is how you pray to Jesus every day, what you're asking for Jesus every day, where you have your assurance every day. How do you know you're saved? That's pretty practical and pretty important.
Would you kneel with me as we close? Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word, both through the Bible and through the writings of your modern messenger. We are so grateful that you took the time to explain to us carefully and clearly how salvation works. And we want to have that divine ISAV that will always retain that clarity in our minds as we read, as we listen, as we try to relate to you as our Savior. And so we ask, Lord, that we will have the pure gospel of Jesus, of Paul, of the apostles, of the early Adventist movement, that we will have this gospel maintained in our experience even when the threats to destroy it are all around us and from some very good sources. Lord, help us. Help us right now to be faithful discerners, to be dividing the, the word correctly through your Holy Spirit's power so that we know today how we can have a saving relationship. And we thank you for hearing our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.